welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Frank Maggio, the CEO and founder of React. And Frank, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, and where I thought we might start is your terrific team that reached out on your behalf began their outreach with a pretty bold proposition. And that is that advertising has a $300 billion problem. And while I wanna go back and talk about your early career going all the way back to your tenure with P&G, that's a very bold statement. So I'd love to start and sort of tear that apart where the number come from and more importantly, what's the problem? Okay. Um, well, thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to asking you a couple of questions too, Matt. Uh, I don't know if you know, we, we graduated from the same college. I, I do know. An em another Emory boy. About the same timing, I think. I was 86. I think you might have been right around that time also. I was 84, right. So, um, but yeah, so we'll go there. Um, the, the problem, I actually call it, it's, it's an industry of its own. I call it the wasted ad industry. The advertising that uh, is like trees falling in the forest with nobody hearing. The ads that are undelivered, the ads that are delivered but not paid attention to. Um, both of those forms of advertising ultimately are uh, paid for. Uh, they just don't result in anything meaningful. And the waste of the advertising industry, I think, goes back over 100 years. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who said, I, I know half my ads aren't working. I just wish I knew which half, right? Uh, what was his name? Wanamaker. Wanamaker. John Wanamaker. I think it's John Wanamaker, right? So, I mean, I, I think advertising, mass media advertising is a $1 trillion a year industry. It's a large industry. And I think the waste in this industry is large. And I think there's a great opportunity for us to either save that money or spend that money more wisely. Because in the end of the day, my theory is that when advertising works, people work. I think it creates jobs. And I think jobs are a noble pursuit. And I think advertising is the starting point. It's the first moment of truth. And so I would, I would like to change advertising for good and try to make that three to $500 billion do its job. Fantastic. All right, we're going to dig in a lot deeper there, uh, a lot to unpack. Let's go back, Frank, and talk about uh, one of the great training grounds that this country's ever produced, and that's Procter & Gamble, where I think you began your career after Emory. Yeah, so um, I, I was hired off. Actually, I stayed after I graduated from Emory. I was actually selling appliances. Um, I was going to go uh, to, to law school, decided not to. And uh, interestingly enough, my first job was, was selling one item, the, the uh, VCR. I was hired to teach people how to sell VCRs. So I had a, a front row seat at consumers discovering uh, ultimately ad skipping. I think the promise of the VCR was never miss a program again, but you could see very early on in the early stages of selling that device that immediately they'd say, oh, and I don't have to watch the commercials. And so I saw that, you know, and, you know, I'm a child, I, I'm a child. I remember vaguely a black and white television. Uh, I remember TV without a remote control, but I, you know, I remember remote control the rest of my life. So TV was central to, to me in entertainment and ad delivery. I learned about advertising by watching television. And um, when I sold VCRs, before I went on to sell the balance of all the appliances, I, I just started having a view on like the future of advertising is gonna be different than it is today. And the other thing that happened just as I was being joining Procter & Gamble, 
was the Super Bowl became this event where advertising hit a hit a million dollars an ad and uh, advertising became something people wanted to watch again. And so that was the convergence of things that were happening in the in the media world around me when I joined Procter and Gamble. And I was there for about four years. Then and the recruiting was was a you know was lots of interviews, lots of great people go through that organization. Uh, some of the I mean honestly like uh, Bob McDonald for example hired a guy that I trained with. He he went on to be the CEO and president. He went on to run the Veterans Administration for the Obama administration. They've got great, smart, decent people. And there's there's a very good value system at Procter and Gamble, and um, they're very disciplined. I mean, I came out of the sales management section. So I didn't come out of the, uh, the brand side, but I got to deal with a lot of people in brand. They, for some reason, would send their trainees to work with me in the field because I seemed to have like, a, I used to sell a lot of advertising to my account. So it was, it was good training. Um, it was also a lot about, uh, they, they gave us computers when other brands didn't have it. So we would go to uh, stores and we would dictate the, the layout of products based on velocity which was an advanced concept back in the 80s. So it was a good company. Fantastic. But somewhere you had an entrepreneurial bent and go out at a very young age and invent a product, which I think is still around, sort of very early to the game in the whole branded water division with H2O+. Well, that's funny. Yeah, so um, there was a pivotal moment in my, in my career at Procter & Gamble. There's a reason I was only there for four years. Um, I happened to stumble across a scratch-off game in a grocery store uh, in South Atlanta, a company called a grocery named Wayfields. I don't know if you never, ever remember that, a little grocer. And it was a contest sponsored by Beatrice Foods, who at the time was a competitor of Procter & Gamble's. And um, I figured out a way to break the game legitimately. And I was able to turn every game piece into a $5,500 winning ticket. And I claimed over $20 million worth of winning tickets. And uh, this is while I was at Procter & Gamble. And it made national news, uh, CNN, Time and Newsweek, et cetera. Um, yeah, it, was very, it was a very high visibility case. They canceled the game. So for two years, I, had to, I found a law firm that took my case on contingency because I was only like 22. Was it 22 or 23? Anyway, and it settled on confidential terms two years later. So at four years into Procter & Gamble, I, I retired and uh, left P&G, moved to Florida. And um, I'd never forget, I, I went to this terrific restaurant here in Tampa called Donatello's and I drank some water and it was tap water and it was just the worst tasting thing I'd ever tasted. And I didn't realize there was an issue with water. And uh, I said, my, this needs to be fixed. Um, so I actually started my own uh, fresh drinking water company called H2O Plus. I didn't even know you knew about that back in like 80, 89. And Ted, listen, our great minds research team is a, it's a crack group. We, we wow. dig very deeply. But where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? You, it seems like you had a natural curiosity, a little bit of a savant in technology uh, at a time when technology was you know, written in much smaller font and, you know, not in bold or italics like it is today, where technology drives almost every aspect of our industry and of society in general. Back then, the role of technology was quite different. I too remember, Frank, a black and white television with no remote control and a dial that you would turn, you know, by hand. 
Where did that come from? Did it come from your parents? Did you always work as a young guy? Where do you think that entrepreneurial spirit came from? It's got a lot to do with my, my mom and dad. I'm a first generation American. And my dad immigrated here when he was 16. He, he's the traditional American Italian immigrant with no money. Um, and he worked really hard and he just believed in this country. He believed in the value of hard work. And he also always said, don't be middle of the road. He always, always said that. Do not be a middle of the road person. Uh, strive and exceed. And in this country, put your mind to it and you will succeed. And I think it just so happened, again, this convergence idea, I just so happened to be at the right place at the right time back in the late 60s, this country still, it still had, it still had this national pride and it still had this tenacity that this was the greatest country in the world. And I happen to also be respectful of my parents. So there's this person I looked up to that told me this and I believed it. I didn't doubt it. It wasn't this person who's preaching to me. It was like, this is, a, this is the most reliable man in my life telling me that if I want to, I can do it. And uh, that just set me on the path of not wanting to quit or give up and strive. Early on, I always wanted to be in the music business, you know, once I graduated from school. And I remember taking a class at NYU, it was taught by Sid Bernstein, who was a legendary promoter. Sid was the one who brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium. Wow. <laughs> and wrote a great, great book full of wonderful stories. And it was he and a guy named Bert Pidel. Bert Pidel was a business manager, Madonna, Luther Vandross. This, is, this must have been, Frank, I would say 1987, 88, when I took this class. And I remember very vividly a piece of advice that Bert gave us. Um, and he said, no one's going to make it happen for you, but if you want to make it happen, you can make it happen. And it was a very simple, straightforward, I think quite similar to the story you just told from your dad. And I have great admiration for people who go out and make things happen like that, because I do think uh, that when we're at our best in America, that this country allows that stuff to happen. And while there's all kinds of inequities baked into our system, I do think all of us have an opportunity. Um, and I love hearing about a, a guy or a gal who sees that opportunity. So you then go on, and before we're going to get to React, of course, but there was an earlier iteration of that about 20 years ago. And uh, I'd love to hear about React TV. Was that sort of the predecessor or completely disconnected? Yeah, there were really two predecessor companies to React. One is Aaron Media and one is React TV. So, I mean, what, what really happened was when I retired in my 20s and moved to Florida, I actually uh, fell in love with real estate and uh, it allowed me to exercise my creative process of disruption through redevelopment. I, I would love to buy big pieces of land that were underutilized or blighted and I would redevelop uh, complete subdivisions and communities and I got very good at real estate development, but I kept thinking about advertising. And the premise that I came up with was uh, from this, this event with Beatrice, that I believed that the, in order for advertising to succeed, it would need to become something that had a value proposition that was obvious. Because the original premise of advertising, one that you and I still remembered, I remember my parents telling me, you should pay attention to these commercials because that's why we're able to watch television. That, that was an idea that, was, that got in my brain. But you can talk to anybody today. They don't think that at all. 
To them, advertising is a nuisance. So I was in that middle period where I thought for TV advertising to survive, there's going to have to be a better value proposition, one that's obvious and one that's rewarding. So I started developing this concept of rewarding advertising, or now what we call it reactive advertising, ads that pique your curiosity, that challenge you, not just, and you've seen a bastardization of this through Uh, Some people call it incentivized viewing, like sit through this commercial and you'll get 15 minutes of free content on Spotify, right? That's that's not what we're talking about. We believe it's a challenge. We, We think people love to be challenged. They like to play games. They like to be right. Uh, you can go, you, you do public speaking, you can ask a question, a trivia question, and instantly you'll see all these hands shoot up because they want to tell you they know the answer. There's this instinct to compete. Um, and I thought that we should, tap, we should tap into that through the advertising process. Let's find a way to engage people with ads, pique their curiosity, incentivize their attention, measure it, and then create this contractual relationship where I'll reward you and you'll give me some data willfully in exchange for which I will present a commercial that's challenging, fun, rewarding, and then we're going to keep your data safe. And that was the idea that I developed over 20 years ago before uh, what's happening today with the Surveillance Advertising Act and all the things that are taking place happened. I realized that privacy, curiosity, rewards, incentives, adrenaline, that can be the advertising model of the future. The technology and that point when you were creating this, that landscape was a little bit different. Oh, absolutely. In fact, our first solution was built in Flash. We actually went to Bright House, um, a Time Warner spinoff here in Tampa Bay, and they gave us Channel 77 to create this TV station to test a game show that had advertising as part of the game. And it was called React TV. Um, It was a two hour a day game show. It ran for about 18 months. It was very low profile. We didn't have a lot of ad budget to spend on advertising. It was truly a test, an incubator. Uh, and we would create these two games. Uh, one of them was a trivia game, and the other was a word game like Wheel of Fortune. And then in between the, the segments of the game, we'd have a two-minute commercial break. And then when we came back from break, we'd ask questions about those ads, and you'd get points in the game show. And we had an average time on site of an hour and four minutes a day. And back then, the MySpace was the big website, and we had five times the daily uh, viewership uh, per person uh, dwell time, if you will, than, than MySpace did. So I knew back then that we had something um, that would in the long term work. But like you said, the technology on Flash, people would have to use a laptop. This is before uh, high bandwidth was available, uh, broadband. So people would sit on, uh, on a computer. There was no smartphone to speak of, right? The iPhone had just started coming out. Uh, it was all built on Flash. So it was very clunky, but you could already tell people liked it. And uh, we just needed water. Just we needed two things to happen for reactive advertising to work. One, smartphones had to be deployed with with high speed internet, um, and then the advertising, the advertisers, and the networks need to recognize they had a problem. Those are the two things that had to happen. But that notion of focused attention, which lives on through the uh, contemporary iteration of React, that seemed to start and have its roots back. 20 years ago. 
Yep, absolutely. It was in React TV, um, reactive advertising, the whole concept of reacting is a 20 year old concept and it was patented too. I filed my first of over 30 patents back in the late nineties, early 2000 around this concept of, uh, actually it was called Crave, uh, consumer rewarded advertising vehicle. It was called Crave advertising. It's morphed to react. The other, the other thing that happened at that same time is I did not know that TV ratings were based on panels. I didn't, they didn't teach me that at P&G because I was on the uh, sales management side, not the ad sales side. So when I went off on my own, my premise was that someday ads on television were going to be reactive. Uh, and, but some people weren't going to be able to react because they didn't want to, but they were still paying heightened attention. And I wanted to measure that. I wanted to say that people were sticking around longer. And that's when I realized that Nielsen didn't really measure advertising. They measured the uh, 15 minute viewing behavior of a selected paid panel. And uh, I did not know that. And um, one day, one of my real estate companies had a salesperson say, hey, we just sold a house to a guy that works for this company called Aaron Media. And I know you're developing this TV network idea. This guy says he works for a company that has a better mousetrap than, than Nielsen. So I, I met the guy and sold him a house. Um, and. <laughs> And I was astonished that they had developed this amazing technology using set-top boxes that was able to provide second-by-second -second viewing behavior at the demographic level at the very smallest program, this, the ones that Nielsen can't measure, and advertising measurement, advertising ratings with full demography without knowing who anybody was using inverse mathematics. So I thought if I could combine the React advertising where people engage through a second screen, and that's purely measured, and that I could also use this Aaron Media technology to measure those that didn't use their device, I could have a census level measurement of advertising delivery and engagement. And again, this was in 2004. And so I acquired that company um, and shortly thereafter got embroiled with a very high visibility antitrust suit with Nielsen. So that's the Aaron Media and React TV are the predecessors to what we have today. And that component of, you know, interactivity and a, a gaming piece and evolution of a sports piece, sounds like those roots go all the way back to that contest you cracked with Beatrice Foods way back when. Absolutely, it does, Matt. Um, the, the, you know, we all have this cathartic moment in life. And, and when I got my check and I retired, um, I thought, you know, this is the moment in your life, like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And I thought, I felt very strong back, back then that I wanted to fix advertising for some reason. And I thought, I want to give people this winning feeling. This winning feeling is so good that people will do just about anything, including watch advertising. So that's literally where it came from. Amazing story. And somewhere along the line, Sports became a big part of the DNA of the company. I know you've got some ex, you know, great players on your team and folks with real sports backgrounds. How did that evolution happen? It's very interesting. So if you go about 2003, 2004, I saw the vision and I saw the future of advertising on TV and it's called the reactive ad pod. Okay. So the concept of a reactive ad pod is live audiences will have a reason to watch live again and not put it on a DVR because the ads are engaging and they're micro game shows. So this has been my idea for over 20 years. 
the, the show goes to break. There's a three minute break. Instead of six ads, there's five. And there's this interactive period where you get your device out and you engage with questions about the ads and you win really large prizes, full measurement. So that was my idea, still is my idea. And we're getting very close to it today. 20 years ago, it was like, what are you talking about? How, how's this gonna work? And I actually got a chance to meet with the president of Fox Television. Ed Wilson was his name. And this was in 2004. I, I had filed my patents, but that hadn't been issued yet. And I, and I went to Century City and you know, I'm a little kid, I'm a kid from Rhode Island. So, you know, even though I went to Atlanta, I still have this starstruck uh, capability inside of me where I just love being around cool stuff, right? So I'm, I'm in Century City, I'm at the president of Fox having a meeting with him and I tell him the big idea. I said, right now, 25% uh, of your airtime is the same as every other networks. And it happens to be the 25% where you're trying to make money. Why not stop focusing on the content side because that's your cost center, focus on the revenue side and make it different and protectable. Make it so people wanna watch your commercials. They'll come from other networks to watch your commercials. And he looked, like, he looked at me like I had three, three eyes in my head and he said, well, what, what are you talking about? I said, make your ads worth watching, create competitions around paying attention. And he said, well, how are my, how are my viewers gonna know this is taking place? And I said, you've got a TV network. You're gonna tell people, pay attention to our commercials. And he said, I'm not gonna do that. If I got any spare time, I'm gonna have them tell, I'm gonna talk about my content, watch my shows. Um, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And we walked out of there uh, downtrodden. Um, I felt like uh, Dorothy and, and, and the crew from the Wizard of Oz leaving uh, the Wizard of Oz's palace and not getting what they wanted. And I looked at my team, I said, guys, let me tell you something. If Fox doesn't get this, Nobody else is going to get it right now. So we just got to go create our own content and demonstrate this. And that's where React TV came from because games, creating games is inexpensive content. So as I matured now and now we're in this next iteration, once again, I can't go to a network and say, use reactive advertising on a, game, on a pod. So I had to create my own show. So I decided to create a game around sports that you play on your phone called Super Squares. Um, and, and again, it's my passion for sports. It's almost ironic because it goes right back to where my life veered into a new course, right? Um, I created a game that combines a quiz show about ads, a prediction about the football game, and squares, this game that 100 million people know how to play, uh, but only play once a year on paper. So I saw opportunity there. So in 2015, I started patenting uh, this concept of super squares, a game show that combines squares prediction and advertising. And uh, we started launching it in a single market last year in Minnesota. This year, we started expanding gradually and slowly through other media, testing different advertising models. Uh, but it looks like we've got us a real winner with super squares. Fantastic. And give us your take, Frank, because you have a, a unique perspective. There's no subject hotter right now in our industry, uh, I, I would submit, than the evolution of streaming and connected TV, addressable TV, advanced TV, um, Nielsen's ongoing trouble and trauma around measurement, what is getting measured, what isn't getting measured, is well-documented. Uh, and uh, I happen to think they have a terrific leadership team, and, and I wouldn't bet against them at all to figure it out. But the challenges that they've been having are very well documented. What's your take on the current and future state of technology-driven TV? 
And where does React fit in that rapidly evolving tech-driven ecosystem? So much has to do with how you define a word. So when you say television, in fact, I remember Mitch Oscar and I, like 20 years ago, we're talking about what I was, I was a writer for Media Post. Uh, I, was, I think it's called the TV board. And Mitch was a writer too. And he did a series called uh, Televisual. He said, we got to change the word TV to televisual. And uh, here's what I think. I think true hardcore TV is a TV, is a television. And there is a power to having a large display with a group of people sharing an event, an experience, even if they're remote, there is a hive mind that you get when a hundred million people around the country are watching a football game. Um, I don't think that's priced into the price of a $7 million 32nd, but because I don't think you can price into it, but there's this sense we all have, I call it a shared common experience. That's the, the saddest thing to me about the migration to this fractured viewing environment and the, uh, the, the ubiquity of content, not only time, kind of content, but when you want to watch it, is that we've shattered this national, this common experience. And um, I think we all yearn for it, particularly if it's around something meaningful, right? Um, to just have that shared experience that binds us as a, as a country. So I, I desperately think it's important that we bring back large audiences uh, sharing a common experience at the same time and not worry about, oh, you know, somebody's binging a show and I can't talk about it um, or I got it on a DVR. I haven't watched it yet. We, we've got to find a way to, to bring true television, live TV back. And then the advertising in that live TV has the ability to also have a shared common experience at the, at the larger mass level. And I think it's going to require an effort and a unified effort by brands, by media platforms, and by consumers. And I'd like to think that React represents the consumer. Ultimately, we want to be the host of this ecosystem, but our eyes are on protecting, respecting, and rewarding consumers. Uh, we're a technology company. We love advertising. We love media. But in the end of the day, our vision is to protect, pr protect, respect, and reward consumers. And ultimately, the brands that do that will win in this ecosystem. And talk about the traction that you're getting now. You're starting to really have an impact. Uh, talk about the agencies and that part of the world who I can't imagine greet you consistently with open arms. I, I think my guess is some of them don't know what to do with you uh, at all. And talk about the brands who I'm guessing may get it a little quicker. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very difficult thing to talk about because there's this relationship. And I saw it at P&G, right? The relationship with the brands and the agencies, they trust the agency to spend their money wisely and to, to, to achieve certain um, results. And ultimately in the age where... Uh, Agencies are squeezed. Um, the, it only makes mass media more, more valuable. It helps spend money quickly, right? So when, what we have is a small audience uh, test program. So they've got to look at us almost like your test and spend type of uh, product because we don't have hundreds of thousands of live viewers yet. So it's taken time to work through. We've been really fortunate working with Publicis and the Miller Light team 
to test some things. We also work with Guaranteed Rate direct with the brand. So we've been able to test some things. But again, it's not about big audiences. It's about the learning. And what we are finding inside of the React TV or the React Super Squares dashboard is we measure things that you can't measure anywhere else. First of all, every single ad, well, 98.7% of all the advertising within our ecosystem is fully viewed at least once, 98.7%. And they rate every commercial. So we know sentiment of every commercial at a census level. And every user is fully registered. We have full demography. We know who everyone is. And then we ask them questions that prove comprehension. And we're able to measure comprehension and sentiment over time. So I can tell you when an ad burns out. So that's the vision I have. There's no reason why television advertising can't do the same thing as long as those pods are reactive. So we're right now starting to have those conversations. We're looking to work with about four brands and one TV network to test reactive ad pods during a primetime program, maybe over a three or four week period, collect the data and demonstrate that I call it must-see TV advertising. That's, that's the, to me, that's the future of mass media advertising on television. I would imagine the convergence of the mobile phone, the tablet, the television and all those talking to each other, that's got to be a big part of your success equation. Absolutely. And, and I think the TV networks, the, the traditional networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox need to be very, very concerned. You brought up a minute ago about streaming. I mean, Amazon is a threat. Understand the threat that Amazon poses to media companies. They connect the entertainment eyeball to the store. And at the end of the day, what Procter & Gamble wants when they spend uh, $800,000 on a 30-second commercial on Sunday Night Football is they want to incentivize, they want to plant an impression in a brain that leads to a transaction, reinforces a transaction down the road, and they're hoping it happens. If you run an ad on Thursday Night Football starting next year, you're going to be on Amazon, and you're going to be on a television connected with a remote control connected to a store. You're one step away from it's a that commercial is an ad to buy something now. And Amazon is predisposed to make that happen. There's not a lot of effort needed for the Amazon ad sales team to go out there and pitch the PGs of the world and say, why are you going to spend six hundred thousand dollars to hopefully implant an idea in someone's mind to buy something when you can place something in a shopping cart on my program? That's where it's going. And I think the networks need to get real, real fast and understand their job is to make those ads work and to start delivering product to the front door. And if they don't do it, someone else is going to do it for them. Yeah, it's fascinating. I remember, and I'm sure you do too, when Fox came in out of nowhere and got the NFL rights and leveraged that to get, they then became a must carry and leveraged that to become the fourth television network. Yeah. What we're seeing now, that's a whole different ballgame. It is. And uh, live television is live football. If you look at um, the top 100 programs last year, 80 of them are NFL games. 80 of the top 100 programs are football. Why? It's the last bastion of live viewing. I mean, we've had discussions this year with networks, and I won't mention any names, that effectively said we're pretty much giving up the ghost on primetime ads working outside of the sports. 
it's we've got to start moving to streaming. Uh, why? Because people, there's nothing time sensitive about watching a show um, any longer. I might as well just put on a DVR or wait till it, I can binge watch it on something else. That's a problem. How do we use that that time wisely? How do we use that prime time viewing? And you know, maybe it's it's a move to sports. Unfortunately, I'm seeing it uh, as a move to gambling. And to me, I'm very concerned about that. Um, it, it's almost as if the the networks have given up on selling attention and now are just going straight for the consumer's pocket. I mean, people need to understand advertising, that the media is driven by two currencies, uh, cash and attention. And they're giving up on the attention and they're going straight for gambling. And that's not a good place. And it's definitely not good for brands. Brands need a way, an outlet to reach people. And if people are too uptight looking at their phone because they're gambling and they got to get in and out of a bet, because that's, that's what's happening in the gaming space. It, it used to be you make a bet and you wait till the event to be over, right? So you'd be a little bit nervous. Now it's like every single play, you can decide to get out of your bet and get into another one. And they do that during commercial breaks. So now you've got a very, very nervous, adrenalized, but negative. It's just a horrible place for brands to start placing ideas in the brain when somebody is hyper-focused on getting out of a wager. It's not good for the brand. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation with Dr. Jerome Adams. He was the 20th person in U.S. history to be Surgeon General and was Surgeon General as COVID erupted. So a lot of our conversation was sort of, he was in the, uh, if you've seen Hamilton, he was in the room where it happened, you know, as everything was exploding back at the end of 19 and the very beginning of 2020. But one of the sidebars that we ended up talking about was the legalization on a widespread basis of marijuana and gambling. And that you can now be in the heart of Beverly Hills and go for a you know, $200 lunch at the Ivy and walk down the street and be in a, in a dispensary that looks like an Apple store. Uh, and all you need is a driver's license to walk in. And then as you're walking out on your phone um, in many, many states now, most recently New York, uh, where you can wager and all these prop bets and everything else in game. I'm not sure. I'm pretty liberal, Frank, but I, I, I'm a little worried about how easy we're making all this stuff. You're 100% correct. And unfortunately, it's one of those things you're going to find out the hard way. You know, you go back to this concept of a shared common experience. If half the audience is high, uh, people experience things differently when they're high. Right. So um, everything starts having all, all these different shades of color. And so um, without regard for whether or not it's healthy for you or whether it's temporary, I mean, it's just it's just not it's, we're not in a good place right now. And, you know, I like to think back to the ad industry. If we're going to change the industry for good, there's going to have to be a way for the, the consumer to have a voice and leadership. And that leadership shouldn't be Congress people. It shouldn't be politicians. It needs to, the, the advertising industry needs to self-regulate and they need to provide a seat at the table for the three share, the, the three stakeholders, the, the brands and the agencies, the media platforms and the consumer. And they need to show that they can respect people and handle this without having intervention by the government. 
So a year from now, I happen to agree with you about uh, the private sector having to drive this, but I also, Frank, worry that out of Silicon Valley in particular, have they frittered away the opportunity to self-regulate by breaching another area that I know is very near and dear to you, and that's around trust. So it's a very complicated set of issues that we've got here. It is. Uh, and when a, when a company is publicly traded, they're also driven by the profit motive. I mean, you can, you know, I, I remember when the big Facebook thing blew up on, on 60 Minutes, et cetera. And it's, it's easy to vilify people, particularly strong leaders or highly visible leaders. But ultimately, once it gets into the corporate, you know, into the corporate clause, it's, a, it's an entity. It's, a, it's not a human anymore. It's a machine. And it's driven by profit. And so um, morality goes out the door, ethics go out the door because money is one color and it doesn't care anything about anybody. So, you know, publicly traded companies, you know, particularly those that are funded by the military at the onset through, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are going on here that we can talk about offline, but it, there's just this, there's this force at work and it's not about the individual and we have to find a way to put the human the the individual free human back where he belongs because he has no voice he literally has no voice i I'll, the biggest frustration i had when i went up against nielsen was and by the way i'm you know it's been 20 years so the animosity's gone with with, with my company and, and nielsen uh, but the, the, the thing that really drove me was that frustrated me was, is that the, the person who pays for the ratings is you and I, you and I pay for TV ratings and the price of content and the price of advertising. And yet the, the consumer had no voice at all in the problems at Nielsen, none. There's no representative of the human because the customer was the TV network. And that's where I learned about monopolies. I mean, if you want to talk about the biggest threat to humanity, I think it's it's monopolized power. And I saw a little bit of that in Nielsen, but I'm seeing this in these big tech companies, the sheer power and the intimidation that comes with that power, the ability to be canceled. Uh, you see what power does with social credit in China, where the government now knows exactly what you do. And if you don't behave and say the right thing, you can't get on a bus and you can't eat. This isn't like just an Orwellian dystopian bad dream. This is like, no, this is the natural progression of an inhumane corporation, profit-driven, maximizing their power. And you re it requires somebody step in and stop it. It has to be stopped. Let me ask you this. Let me take a cynical view. You're a relatively small player. The ambition to change advertising for good is a lofty one. I happen to believe personally in your mission to protect, respect, and reward consumers for paying attention. Can you have the impact that you're looking to have at scale, Frank? I think that's a fair question. Oh, yeah. It's a real fair question. It's who you know, not what you know, right? Um, we're a small company here in Largo, Florida. We're not where you are. We're not in New York. We're not, we don't go to the big lunches and meet the muckety mucks and um, but you know, some of the best innovations have come from outside of industries. Um, that's where you can see the forest from the trees. So I think it's, it's a lofty goal. I like the way you said that. It's an ambitious, lofty goal. Um, I happen to believe that if you focus on the good and you stay with it, that good things happen. And um, 
It only takes, we always tell my team, we're, we're, one, we're one yes away from changing the entire industry. One, one big player, one major, uh, a Mark Pritchett from Procter & Gamble, for example, uh, a Rupert Murdoch, even a producer. We have a TV show called React TV 2.0, which is a live game show about commercials. A Mark Burnett, any one of these people, when they see what we have at the right time, at the right place, can say, yeah, we're doing this because there's no reason. There's, there, we've broken, there, there are no technological reasons why this, we fixed and we fixed and tested and built and patented everything we need to make this happen. Technology is not a challenge to us anymore. It's the human will. It's the desire of an industry to change and do something good for everybody and put away the greed, put away the pride, the not invented here, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where it's invented. The point is it's needed. We need to save this industry. We need to make advertising work for everybody, everybody. Well, that was a great uh, way to wrap. I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation, Frank. I must say I, I was a little bit unsure how this one would go. I, I love your ambition. Uh, but you've got a great story and the irony going back to a, a young kid who was selling VCRs way back when uh, to the evolution and what we're going to be looking at next year, as you described when Amazon, you know, takes over Thursday night football. It's quite an evolution over a relatively short period of time, uh, give or take 20 some odd years. Uh, and uh, I wish you every success. I think it's a great story you have there. And uh we're going to want to check in and see how you're doing. Well, thank you, Matt. And listen, I'd like to put this out there. I'd like to interview you someday, ask you some questions on your own show. Because have you ever done that? Has anybody ever? Uh, listen, Frank, I, you're, you're an easy guy to talk to anytime. <laughs> okay, that sounds awesome. Good. Thanks so much, buddy. Take care. So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.